listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Years ago, I was at a retreat where um, it may have been actually my first extended, like big time extended retreat, uh, several days long. And uh, I had been forewarned that sitting for long periods of time for several days in a row can be excruciating, can be very difficult and so forth. And I was at a point in my practice where I probably thought I was ready. My ego thought I was ready uh, because, you know, I could do it. And then um, my body was probably not ready, uh, which means, of course, that I did it. And uh, uh, I think one of the, the neatest gifts of the experience, aside from just f- kind of forcing the issue of discipline, was that it opened up this entire new availability to the idea of presence. So I wanted to talk tonight a little bit about presence and what exactly that means, how it is that we can employ some type of uh, presence to our our day-to-day. Not only when we are sitting in meditation, but presence when we are making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, when we are, uh, you know, getting a, a latte or something, whatever it is. How is it that we can employ presence in the face of it all? Anyway, back to the retreat. One of the things that was so fascinating to me was how much my mind and its various identifications, it would go through various situations and uh, I like this, I don't like this, I don't like it. It was like my mind was just constantly, constantly going. And the tendency for that kind of rat-tat-tat of mind chatter to begin to diminish corresponded directly. There's this incredible uh, inverse correlation between mind chatter and body comfort. And then as my body started to get more and more uncomfortable, I started to watch the mental chatter decrease and decrease and decrease. When I finally hit a point, um, and I kind of knew this was coming because people have talked about it a great deal, that you know, once you start hitting day two, day three, when you're sitting for, you know, 13 hours a day or whatever it was, the body starts flipping out. And it, it shows up in the form of, in my body at least, incredible knee pain. And then it was back pain. 
and then it was back and knee pain, the neck, I mean, every type of pain you could imagine. And what I kept noticing as I was going through this kind of physical ordeal was that my mind had become very still. And it was just this shocking, shocking realization that the discomfort, physical discomfort, actually opened up this doorway to presence. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, I, I sometimes refer to presence as where wisdom and compassion meet. It's where consciousness is, expresses itself fully, meaning we're no longer in the way of it. It's just being, might be another way of putting it. When our mind is no longer grasping, and when our body, we can begin to kind of get, allow our body to become tenderized by whatever it's facing. And then that in turn allowing this being to express itself, what do we start noticing? We start noticing that there's ultimately a very deep calm that's available to us no matter what storm is showing up. Now, I, of course, thought in my uh, egoic way that, you know, I had really happened on something. And, of course, my teacher did exactly the right thing when I went and kind of talked to him about it. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's designed to do this. No, you know. But it was, it was really powerful, you know. It was really powerful in that the discomfort that life offers us, whatever it might look like, is actually this invitation. It's actually an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity for us to be deeply present with what is, as it is. So as everybody, you know, sits tonight comfortably in their chairs with their blankets wrapped around their shoulders because the AC is blasting. <laughs> do what you can to not necessarily tighten up bodily, but do what you can to be really alert. It's no wonder that, you know, many of us were trained to sit in this oddly folded posture sitting in lotus or, you know, in kind of these strange yogic postures is designed to create an alertness so that you can't be too comfortable. And so I would ask tonight that you look at your level of comfort and your desire for that comfort. Begin to explore the edge of that need for comfort or the tendency for you to avoid discomfort. Give it a look. See what you, see what you, see what you uncover. And in the process, be totally alert. Be right there for all of it, whatever shows up. Cool thing is, you know that after about 35 minutes or so, it's over. So you can, you just, you're not going to be in, you know, no one's, <laughs> no 
No one's going to blow a knee tonight, most likely. Um, but uh, give that give that some uh, some some careful careful consideration as you as you sit tonight. How is this body feeling? How is this experience? Has anyone figured out how to shut down the AC? Do you know how to do it? No. We, I was told, having arrived early, we can't. <laughs> it's locked. It's locked. It's locked purposely. I wonder if we open the door. Yeah. sabotage the clock. I did. I took the pendulum, which is a violation of probably several precepts, but everybody's just going to have to suck it up, okay? Because <laughs> uh, So this idea of presence, not only how presence manifests, in the world, among and through people, but also kind of deconstructing presence. What, what is it exactly? What is it when you see somebody who is filled with that certain quiet fire? You just, you can't take your eyes off of them. Uh, the charismatic uh, magnetism, or in uh, uh, India, we might call it sh the shakti that somebody shows, that spiritual sweetness that somebody can kind of show. Whether or not they're a spiritual being, some people just carry this, this, this presence with them. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's nice. That's always nice to see. Uh, I think I've shared this with some of you. I was uh, uh, in a, back when I was a, a waiter in New York City, I would run into pretty much every, you know, star and starlet imaginable in my particular restaurant. And one of the people who had this, it was the best way I could describe it, just a vibe. Uh, it's a guy named John Malkovich you may have heard of. <laughs> Could not take your eyes off this guy. Just absolutely strange, a very bizarre bird. But uh, really, really just this amazing, amazing presence. And if you watch his craft as an actor, and he's not the only one who's this way, but I mean, you can't take your eyes off of him. Why? 
because he's utterly and completely in the moment. He is watching, listening, feeling, and reacting to what is presenting itself as it is presenting itself. There's a great deal of uh, spiritual gold in this, watching somebody who's really doing this quite well. Uh, and he's, like I said, he's one of, of, of many who are in this space. I, I'm always fascinated by uh, uh, just sometimes what I'll sit on, I have a little deck outside of my office, and I will just sit there on my deck some, some mornings if I'm up early and the girls are all still asleep, and just kind of watch the wildlife and watch how animals will totally key on something where they are so present. Either they're, my cat used to stalk stuff and just, you know, just sit there and wait. Maybe one of its paws was raised, you know, ears might go back, and then it would try to pounce. You can't take your eyes off of something in that energetic space because it's fully there, it's fully committed. Uh, and that's essentially what we are working with as spiritual beings having this human experience, we become more cognizant of our spiritual nature the more we can kind of unpack or at least uncover consciously this same gift, this ability to be utterly, completely, and totally alert in every single moment. Eckhart Tolle talks about it like this. He says, when consciousness frees itself from its identification with physical and mental forms, it becomes what we may call pure or enlightened consciousness or presence. I'll say that again. When consciousness frees itself from its identifications with physical and mental forms, in other words, when our experience is no longer bound by physical things like our bodies or other bodies, okay? Uh, uh, something physical like, this is kind of quasi-physical, but you, you might say uh, uh, a feeling that you have in your body. Okay? It's physical. Okay? You might, you might look at it as uh, internal or external feeling. Uh, internal or external thingness. When we're no longer, our, our awareness is no longer identified with that, our consciousness is no longer identified with this body and its experience, and it is no longer identified with this mind and its thoughts, we develop an open presence that we sometimes call a witnessing awareness, or I've called the eighth sense. Okay, which I'll go over in two or three seconds. But this witnessing, witnessing awareness, this idea that I am now watching my body. I am aware of my body. There is an I that is aware of this body. The body then becomes an object to a deeper subject. The body becomes something that can be seen by some seer. The seer is kind of a mystery in this case. But we can begin to have this body as an experience as opposed to this body as our final reality. 
The same thing goes with our minds. We can begin to identify the mind and its activity. Uh, rather, I should say, not identify with it, but we can begin to uh, become aware, become conscious of the fact that the mind and all its activity can become this object. It's something we can study. We can study our mind. We can study our thoughts. We can study where our thoughts meet our bodies, which is, we call emotions. We can study this stuff. The studier is the deeper subject to the studied, which is the mind. I know this may sound kind of wacky and out there, but this is really, really key. Because what we can begin to recognize is that the body and the mind can become experiences. If they are experiences, they are inherently temporary. Experiences, all of them, are interdependent. And experiences in and of themselves have no mass. They are emptiness. They are the infinite expressing itself time and time again. So when we can do this, when we can begin to watch this stuff going on, we, when we can watch our bodies and we can watch our minds, we can watch our thoughts, we can watch our feelings, we can watch our world, we can watch our environment from an open place rather than a place of defensiveness and closure. What arises very naturally from this spaciousness is wisdom. What's employed here? Well, it's kind of a mystery. There are all sorts of ways of talking about it. I've chosen to call it the eighth sense because it makes so much, it just seems to fit in place. If we look at our five physical senses of the body, right? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, yeah? Physical body has all of those senses. And then, if at least we look in the Eastern tradition, the sixth sense is not that, you know, we can have an intersubjective experience where I can read your mind or something like that, although I can. Uh, but <laughs> if, <laughs> it's not that. It's not that at all, actually. It's the experience of, of mind, a mind experience or a mind sense, a thought sense. Does this make sense? Okay. And then we have the seventh sense, which is our sense of time, past and future, something that's already happened, something that has not happened yet. Now that seventh sense is a really cool leap because the sixth sense or the mind sense cannot exist without that seventh sense. The seventh sense, the sense, our sense of time is what gives fuel to the mind. A neat little thing you can practice during the day is figure out how many times you have thoughts that are oriented around something that's already happened or how many times during the day you're having thought patterns that are about something that hasn't happened yet but might. And then what you can do once you get good at that is figure out, is it positive, neutral, or negative? Your sense of these experiences. And then pretty soon you can, you can kind of start recognizing, my God, I am always worried about something that hasn't happened yet. 
or I am continually longing for something I used to have, or, and you start recognizing how the mind is actually keeping us small. The sixth and seventh sense actually have a way of, through mirror neurons or whatever it is, actually beginning to squish our humanity. Negativity begins to abound. We might experience our days in varying degrees of eh, okayness. Or maybe it's great. But then when that great sense starts to fall a little bit and we recognize it, we immediately go into the mind state, seventh sense, start going, yesterday I had a great day. Today I'm not having a good, I wonder if tomorrow is going to suck. You know, we start having these really interesting thought patterns that are really worthy of our attention. But here's the cool thing. If we are giving them our attention, if we are able to be aware of those primary five senses, the mind sense, which is number six, and time itself, if we can be aware of all those things, we have gone into what we call the eighth sense, which is the seer of all that can be seen. Krishnamurti called this, I think, the, uh, think, I think his uh, phrase was he called it the uh, purest form of intelligence, being able to witness this experience of life that we're in. If we can do this, if we have disidentified from our physical, not denying it, but we are no longer locked or, or bound by it, and we are no longer locked or bound by our thoughts, we are in a space of presence. We have simultaneously sutured together the wisdom of totally objective watching and the compassion that very naturally springs from that space. I'll say that again. When we can no longer identify with body and mind, when we, can no longer, when we no longer are, are compelled to identify, when we can begin to study them, that studier or that witness or that eighth sense offers a lightness, it offers an openness, it offers a freedom, a liberation, from which we can begin to see very clearly who it is that we are and who it is that we are not. And we quickly recognize that there is no separation between what we've always thought was us and everybody else. We start seeing that this is all one giant experience that we all share. We don't own it in isolation of others. We actually share it with everyone, even those we don't particularly care for. But the cool thing is, from this place of the eighth sense, from this witnessing awareness, where we, instead of judging things, we watch judgment. Instead of being pounded by life, we watch the experience of getting pounded. 
instead of instead of getting pulled, pushed, and prodded by negative responses that we might have arising internally, we watch them. When we can come at life from that place, what happens is we can meet all other beings from openness. I was sharing this this story with, I forget who, there's some famous teacher who uh, uh, posed this, and I, I forget who it was, so uh, that's the extent of my footnote tonight. But the, uh, uh, the, the question was, can you explain compassion? And uh, I mean, the, the neat thing about compassion is it's what's, it's, it's before everything else. It's before any type of negativity, any type of desperation, any type of competition, any type of, it's, it's prior to that. It seems to be this very natural expression of the universe that any one of us might be able to experience real quickly, even if we see ourselves as very judgmental or we struggle with, I like that type of, but not that type of, you know, even if we're in that space, what the, uh, what the teacher, uh, teacher described was uh, a trip out to the car from the grocery store, arms filled with bags of food, and then all of a sudden getting crashed into by somebody, at which point the groceries go out all over the place. The immediate reaction on the part of the person who uh, uh, fell with their groceries splattering all over the place is one of intense, quick, and ferocious negativity. Who in the name of Buddha would do such a, and then, and then they suddenly recognize that the person that crashed, excuse me, crashed into them is blind. And upon that recognition, negativity falls away at light speed, and the question really becomes, are you okay? That's compassion. And the minute we can see people locked in senses one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, especially those first six, especially number six, when we see people locked in that space, we are looking at someone who is blind. Give them a break. They're doing their best. Doesn't mean that compassion means say yes to everything, roll over and you know, let yourself get beaten by the world. Compassion actually can have a very ferocious no affiliated with it. Small compassion or what we might call silly or Childish or idiot compassion is the kind which is just about them making sure they're okay. I'm being a nice guy, therefore I'm. That's, that's a very small version of compassion. Big compassion has a huge, huge difference, a giant, beautiful component added to it. And that, it's, that is that you yourself must be included in that compassionate mix because you are not separate from them, just like your toe is not separate from your experience.
So pushing these two things together, pushing wisdom and compassion together to give us presence, allowing for ourselves to no longer be identified with our minds and our bodies in ways that we may have habitually seen ourselves as uh, identified or that we are no longer participating so fully in a series of stories that keep us small. We suddenly start seeing a choice. And the choice, if we follow it, if we follow that choice, if that choice is, can I begin to witness my experience can I become the seer of all that is seen? When we begin to choose that orientation, wisdom spawns compassion. And living from that place offers the world presence. We are ready for anything absolutely everything and anything in those moments. We're no longer bound. We're especially no longer, we're not only no longer bound to what has traditionally held us down, we're no longer bound to our sense of what freedom would be. We just live it. And it's hard to take your eyes off of somebody who's living from that space. It's hard to not just be divinely inspired by uh, a, a person who can walk with that type of conscious grace. And the neat thing is, it's available. It's totally available. It's not something you have to... <laughs> it's not something you have to work toward or something you have to learn. It's something you have to unwork and unlearn. It's something we are that has been covered up by years and years of egoic clinging. Surrendering allows for all this stuff to kind of open, open up through us. With surrendering, I mean letting go, no longer identifying with our thoughts, and our feelings, presence very naturally shows up. Participating in the world from that wise place shows up as compassion. And just one little final thing I would point out. One of the uh, neatest ways to start practicing compassion is with someone you love someone who is really marvelous, someone who has shown you a way, someone who's inspired, who's inspired you. Start there. And then get compassionate with yourself. Knock off any and all self-loathing. Just stop it. <laughs> you don't have to hate yourself, you know? Oh, I'm too much. Shut up. Oh, see, you're right. Yeah. 
None of this I'm too much or not enough stuff. Start practicing that. And then when you get good at that, I want you to take the most challenging people, most challenging people in your life or on Fox News. Oh! <laughs> the most challenging people that you can find and know that they're working their hardest. They're doing the best they can. Now, of course, you might be able to list all the reasons why they need to work harder or what true work might offer them, you know. But that doesn't take us very far. That just puts you in the position of being judge and jury, which really isn't very compassionate. Instead, just recognizing, recognizing that every single thing you see outside is reflected in some way internally. Everything you love is within. Everything you can't stand is also within. Have compassion surrounding that reality. Have presence in the face of all of that. Know that your life is a gift. It is a gift so that you can experience what's beyond you. people that are attaching. Well, and, and of course there's people who we've probably all met who were certainly more mean than that. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to have compassion for somebody who is trying their hardest to actually hurt other people? Or the person that's trying their hardest to hurt other people or someone who has centered her life or his life around that kind of negativity and so forth is deeply pained. They might be really filthy rich, but they're hurting. They're hurting in that they are dealing with the suffering of separation. They don't see interconnection. They see defensiveness and war. And so someone who is mean is another way of saying somebody who's basically at war. Watching someone who is at war, ultimately they're at war with the sacred. And that generates a kind of quiet anxiety 
sometimes it's not so quiet and pain and sometimes that pain is not so quiet that shows up in you know with you know vituperative language uh, it shows up with nastiness it shows up in all sorts of really really powerful ways that aren't necessarily things we like to look at but they are also things that could have been us if we were raised the way they were raised, if we'd experienced what they'd experienced, if our fears had been reinforced the way theirs had been reinforced. So one of the ways that we can work with this is when we see somebody who is being mean and nasty, can we meet them with greater presence as opposed to the easy way, which is meeting them with our own unconsciousness, our own nastiness? That's the trick. Does it mean that you let them do what they're going to do? Unchallenged? Maybe, or maybe not. But if you are going to meet their challenge with one of your own, yours better be sourced from an I love you as opposed to an I hate you. That's exactly how Gandhi got the most powerful army in the world out of his country. That's how Dr. King was able to inspire not only African-American population, but also the white population that was ready to hear his words because it spoke to something deeper. And so it's this great opportunity for us whenever we uh, run into somebody or some situation where that's, where that's showing up. It's a great opportunity for practice. Are you ready? No, I think you're ready, Dave. I know you, buddy. You're ready. Did I answer your question? Yes, mostly. Mostly. Do you have more? Do you want to think on it? Well, you sir, I, I think you did uh, answer it, actually. Okay. At some point, I thought, well, I certainly wouldn't want to say to somebody like that, oh, you poor thing. No. You must be really miserable inside, even though you don't realize. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's... And, see. And, and, that I, uh, <laughs> I can perceive the depths of your depravity. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, that's beautifully said, yes. Yeah, that, deep compassion for you. I, I, I have deep compassion for you because you must be hurting, right? Compassion would, a deeply compassionate response would never, ever even go there because it's not an I and you. It's that. It's within. <laughs> Years back, we went through this. Uh, this was, I mean, I shouldn't laugh about it, but, but it's, I, I'm, I'm totally irreverent. Uh, it, was, it was right after we had started, I guess, with uh, shock and awe or something like that. And I don't know if any of you were here that night, but we had... Uh, uh, we had this major, major uh, assault on Baghdad and so forth. And there was, I think there were only maybe it, that night, if I remember correctly, I remember kind of giggling about it when I walked in, maybe one guy or no men and the rest, yeah, I, could, I could look into the room and there were, these women were just seething. And one in particular... 
One in particular, I went over to her and, and I, I, put my, I just put my hand on her back. That's all I did. I just put my hand on her back. And she whipped around and said, don't touch me. <laughs> like, wow. And it was, it, it was totally fine. I mean, it was, I, I didn't take offense to it at all. It was an appropriate response. This woman was, I mean, for her, she was deeply, you know, and she went off on this tirade on, you know, George Bush and how evil he was, you know, whatever, and all this stuff. And, you know, that, that's something we all share. We all have an internal George Bush. All of us. Totally confident, you know, absolutely sure. Damn the torpedoes, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, all of us have that capacity, all of us have that within. And if you look at it from this perspective that I was kind of talking about, when we start, when we start looking at consciousness and awareness, what, what happens is we can start having an awareness of these tendencies, not only that other people are showing that kind of tweak us, but we can be aware of that tweak and create space around it. That allows for us to then respond to that in a compassionate way that can actually influence decision making in really, really powerful and generous ways. So, you know, who, who, who knows? Who knows? I, I certainly don't, I don't wanna, uh, I don't wanna, I don't, I'm not trying to make excuses for, for horrific behavior. Horrific behavior needs to be met stood up to, but if it's stood up to from a place of negativity, contest, contraction, fist, as opposed to one of openness, we're, it's, it's, we're, we're uh, instead of working from a place of, of presence, we're working from a place of uh, blindness. I kind of babbled a lot there, sorry. <laughs> Anyone else? Hey. Um, I've been getting more and more confused lately about the difference between love and compassion, or if there actually is any. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I would just look at it like um, compassion is love without the hate. So I'm, I'll, <laughs> do you want me to say more? Because yes. I might go on for a long time. Yeah, you know, I, Can you put it in a yeah sure, sure. <laughs> Love without the hate. I, I guess um, I had it. I had it described to me this way in really, really cool terms. Love and hate can actually—they're really, really close. And what's what's furthest away from love is not hate, but rather indifference. Okay, and so what happens is on this cycle, you know, where love and hate, you know, or, or we can look at it like the intensity up here is really high, and then indifference is kind of like meh, you know. But that that love and hate thing, where, where someone could switch back and forth fairly easily, some of us may have had that experience in relationship, you know. Uh, that actually is labeled as love and hate, but it's really an egoic negotiation. That love at that level is really conditional. Conditional, you say? Conditional, yeah. 
conditional. In fact, most people will say that their love for something or someone is unconditional when in fact it's actually deeply conditional. It does, it, it might not take, I mean, it might take uh, very little to tear someone's love asunder because it's based on attachment, okay? And that's oftentimes the kind of love we try to negotiate with in spiritual terms uh, uh, in a marriage, right? And so it's got this added component. I mean, we've got, we've got the ring, we've got the symbol that says, no, 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 I'm attached, right? And so how do we... How do we do this? Well, the, the love is, is hopefully this, this, uh, this fire that is experienced on two levels. One level is that it is egoic. It is romantic. There is passion, desire, all that stuff. It is fun. It's spicy. It, what, it's what helps make the human experience really cool on the one hand. On the other hand, there's big love. And big love goes way beyond that. And it's something that can be experienced and shared with all of humanity once it is experienced from deep within our own hearts for ourselves. We start seeing that there is no more boundary between self and other. That it is all one. Instead of being alone, we are all one. Almost the same spelling. And in that all oneness, what then begins to transpire is instead of a love that is in any way possessive or covetous or desirous, it is something that is explosive. Compassion works like that. It's something that is freely offered. It's something that can't be contained. It's something that's underneath everything. Love, as we typically refer to it, is something we reserve for just those special. Does this kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. It does. Because in my mind, then I don't think of that, that love with the hate that you're describing as love. It's, I don't even know what that is, but I don't like putting it in that category. Right. I think that's what trips me up. Yeah, well, it, to be fair then, if, if you don't... Um, The reason, why I, the reason why I illustrate the love and the hate thing is because most of us live lives not recognizing how close the two are. If you've ever felt hatred and you explore that feeling with your full presence, with that eighth sense, explore hate, you're going to find a physical feeling that is nearly identical to love hardcore uh, love, you know, just that, that fiery, mm. it's bizarre. And this is one of the things that presence offers us. Presence offers us a, a chance to deconstruct, to kind of explore that with total awareness. And the other thing that I kind of neglected to say was that that big love, that explosive, explosive open love that can be shared equally, whether it's with, uh, you know, a child, a mate, or you know the, the postman, whatever. That that is something that can also be experienced in this body, and it can radically enhance relationship. So whatever small love you might have, you know, this big love infusion actually carries it 
into a different, a different space. Yeah, sure. But don't take my word for it. Okay. It's time. Thank you for coming tonight.